Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the book of Acts, chapter 20, and reading verses 17 through 38. I invite you to turn there and follow along now as I read from God's holy and inspired word. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today, that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed, They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. It was uh, August 16th of 1992 when I first 
stepped into this pulpit to greet you for the very first time. I particularly remember the date because it was Julie's and my 17th wedding anniversary. And my text for that day was Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, Paul's greeting to the church in Rome. And the sermon title was Saying Hello. Very original, I thought. I want to read a paragraph from that sermon because uh, not many of you that are here today were here back then, and even if you were, I would not trust your memory now. This is what I said. Friends, I want you to know that if there is one thing that I will not consciously do, it will be to shortchange you with regards to my presentation of the gospel. I believe that God has called me to expound to you and every other person who will listen the scriptures concerning the Son of God. On Sunday morning, you will not find me here plugging the latest pop psychology. You will not find me dumping a load of guilt on you. You will not find me skittering around in left field searching for a text to support some wild idea that came to me in a dream. What you will find is a man who deeply desires to share with you the love and grace of God that he has come to know. And what you will find is a pastor who seeks to touch your hurt and to bring to you a word of healing. And what you will find is a preacher who recognizes that the Scriptures of God cannot be improved. They can only be approved. And with that, we began a ministry together that has spanned 31 years. Now, I am not going to spend my final preaching opportunity to review the past 31 years, for that would be a violation of the standard that I just read. That being said, as I bid you all goodbye, there are things that still remain to be said. For until the day when Christ returns, the gospel needs to be proclaimed every Lord's day. And the sheep of his pasture still need to be fed. And to do that, I have chosen this text from the book of Acts in which the Apostle Paul was saying goodbye to the elders from the church in Ephesus, an important city where he spent close to three years. And Paul began making the case for Christ there in the local synagogue until the Jews finally rejected the gospel and displaced him from their worship space, whereupon he rented the hall of Tyrannus nearby and proclaimed the word of Christ from there to anyone with ears to hear. And so effective was this approach that we are told in Acts chapter 19 that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now this is an astounding statement when one considers the geographical area of ancient Asia, which would have been around 50,000 square miles, roughly the size of Virginia and Maryland. And at that time, Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, with approximately a quarter of a million residents. Ephesus served as the center for the worship of the Greek fertility goddess Artemis, or Diana to the Romans, and yet in the midst of all this idolatry and spiritual darkness, it proved to be fertile ground for the good news of Christ. 
but it was not without its challenges. No ministry is. As Paul declares to the elders, there were trials. There were adversarial plots. There were many tears. It was not smooth sailing. But none of those things prevented the gospel from finding the sheep who belonged to Christ because Paul did not shrink from declaring the gospel. And this remains the issue even today. We live in a time when the success or failure of a ministry is measured not by faithfulness in declaring the gospel, but by any number of metrics that are far more secular. How large is the crowd? The budget, the staff, the program, the worship center. Do the worship times suit our soccer schedule? Is it contemporary worship or traditional? Is the congregation diverse? Will the minister tell me that Jesus loves me just the way I am, i.e., I'm not planning to repent? Seldom does anyone ask about a particular ministry, whether or not the central message is Jesus and his atoning work. Seldom does anyone ask whether or not people are called to repentance. Seldom does anyone ask, how many adult baptisms did you have last year? Are the disciples there growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? What fruit of the Spirit is materializing in your midst? But you see, these are the things that are profitable. These are the things that would have been key measurements to the apostles as to whether or not a ministry was moving in the right direction. But amazingly, in many places, you will hear the leadership of a church arguing that if the message is not altered to attract a younger generation, that the church will die. As though Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, did not know what he was talking about when he said he will build his church and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. Or you will hear the argument that the message needs to change because the culture is changing. And if you fail to make the necessary adjustments, you will lose this generation. As though the one who created this generation and formed them in their mother's womb decided to make a generation that was immune to the only antidote for the sin that resides within them. One of the things that frightened me when I first sensed God's call to ministry my first year of college was the burden of knowing that the eternal destiny of others might be affected by what I would say. And it was that which fueled my study and my reading and my choice of every single word, every single week, so that I was as clear as I could possibly be, so as not to mislead anyone or fail to rightly communicate the doctrines of grace. Beloved, there will be ministers among those who will say to the Lord on the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And the Lord will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Now you may wonder, how is that possible? How is it that a person who has devoted their life to this work and done so much good in the world could be separated from God for all eternity? And the answer is that for them, this is performance art. They don't believe that the Scriptures are divinely inspired and they argue that it's fine if you don't either. They don't believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead and they argue that it's not necessary that He do that and it's just fine if you don't believe that He did. They don't even necessarily believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, but rather that He was a very inspiring man who said some very wonderful things like, Love your neighbor, do not judge lest you be judged, and that's the most important thing that you should take away. And for all intents and purposes, they are no different from the high priests in the temple of Artemis misleading people to follow a mythological person. And that's what makes them a worker of lawlessness because they have failed to tell the people that they are sinners in need of a Savior and that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the God-man, Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified for your sakes, who rose from the dead on the third day for your justification, and who now intercedes for you at the right hand of God the Father. Paul declares to these Ephesian elders that he is innocent of the blood of any unbelievers within their ranks, for he never failed to offer the whole counsel of God, which is to say that he never skipped over the difficult passages He never avoided divisive issues for fear of alienating some and being canceled. He always presented God's perspective. He made no apologies for it, for he knew it to be the truth, and he had all the scars to prove it. But he also knew that the world in which we live is affected by unseen forces which will continue to prey upon those who are unwitting in the things of God. As we read earlier from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Beloved, when Jesus declared that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, he did not say that that hell would go down without a fight. And this is why Paul says to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. You see, the role that elders play in the church is a critical role. They are the overseers, the sheepdogs of the flock. They are to keep their eyes peeled for any signs of spiritual danger, both to them individually and to the rest of the flock. And when they sense it, they are to sound the alarm. They are to confront that danger when they perceive it and take whatever steps are necessary to ward it off and to protect the sheep because the Lord Jesus bought these saints with His own blood, with His own life poured out for them. And He has made the elders to be overseers when He ascended into heaven. If you are an ordained elder here this morning, do you feel the weight of the task before you? I hope you do. 
Do not neglect your duties. Do not shirk your responsibilities in regard to this stewardship because trouble is always coming. Nothing has changed since the time of Paul. He knew then and I know now that fierce wolves will come. That even from among those who have weaseled their way into the ranks of the visible church, that there will arise those who speak of twisted things all with an eye of dragging away the sheep. This is no overstatement, beloved. The church today is under attack Upon the Imago Dei, the image that God has imprinted upon every man, woman, and child, and it is a spiritual assault of epic proportions, and yet there are congregations who take pride in it. And so the charge to the elders to be alert. When Paul wrote his Ephesian letter, he did so from his Roman prison. So some years had passed from this moment in Acts 20 when he saw them last. That even though time had passed, the danger had not. It was only intensified. It became even more clear that if they were to survive this onslaught of spiritual powers, it would have to be with spiritual armor. It would require that they be girded with the truth of Christ and covered by His righteousness. It would require that the foundation upon which they stand is the gospel of peace found in Christ alone. It would require that their faith never be set aside under any circumstance, but serve as a constant shield in the face of this spiritual battle. Their own sense of salvation would need to guard their thinking, and their knowledge of the Word of God would be their only weapon. But if you read that portion of the letter again carefully, you will notice that Paul is not arguing that they must win the battle by taking new ground. All they must do is to stand upon the crown that Christ has already won. Four times in these few verses he tells them to stand. And every piece of spiritual armor is actually a gift that has already been given to them in Christ. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, their salvation, their faith, and the Word of God. The only offensive weapon they are given. Beloved, as I prepare to take my leave, I hope that I have instilled in you the singular importance of your knowing the Scriptures well. It is why I have always encouraged you to bring your Bibles with you to worship so that you may check for yourself the things that I have said to you. It's why I've always said that you have a responsibility to confirm that what is declared from this pulpit is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And if you ever hear something that sounds a bit off, that you dig even more deeply into the Word to uncover the truth of whatever it is. Now, there is a balance to that, and it is this. Probably around 30 years after Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesians from his Roman prison, the Lord Jesus came to the Apostle John, who had been exiled to the island of Patmos. And John was in exile, having been most recently in Ephesus, strengthening the church there. But when the imperial worship of the Caesars increased to the point 
that they insisted that the subjects of Rome all declare without reservation that Caesar is Lord, the persecution of Christians who refused to make that declaration increased, and leaders such as John were dealt with. But on that lonely island, the Lord of all lords and King of all kings came to John and revealed to him things concerning the churches as well as the judgment of temporal powers like Rome. And the Lord's revelation begins with letters addressed to seven churches in Asia Minor, Ephesus being the first one addressed. And it is apparent from what the Lord declares to them that they have taken seriously the task of doctrinal integrity. Jesus says to them, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Everything that Paul urged them to do in terms of keeping watch, guarding the sheep from the fierce wolves, dealing with those who offered twisted things, they have apparently done those things. But over the years, something else happened. From the first generation of believers to what now may be the third generation of believers, the evangelistic zeal that caused the gospel to spread from Ephesus all across the region of Asia had waned. Because Jesus says to them, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, when the gospel takes hold of you, it not only takes hold of your head, it takes hold of your heart. It not only overwhelms you with the reality that you have been forgiven of all your sins and made into a new creation. It overwhelms you with the notion that this good news, while singularly yours, is not exclusively yours. It causes you to fall in love with the Savior in ways that you find hard to explain, but it also causes you to have a love and a compassion for the lost to the degree that you are not satisfied to simply pass them by. But the Lord creates within you a desire to tell others about Jesus in order that they might believe as well. And it is that love that the Ephesians had abandoned. And so Jesus commands them, Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Now the verb to remember there is present active and so it means keep on remembering. Keep on remembering. Don't allow yourself to ever forget this important aspect of the gospel that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And beloved, it is vitally important that we have a doctrinal foundation that is solid and sure as well as constant and clear. But all of that is for naught if it is not coupled with a love for God and a love for the lost that compels us to go and tell what we know to be true. In other words, as believers, we all need to see ourselves as a missionary for Christ, grounded in the Word, 
motivated by love, looking for opportunities to tell others about what Jesus has done for them. The Gospel writer Luke reports, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Is it easy being a disciple of Christ? It is not. But if you know him, then you also know that he's faithful, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. You know that he has provided you with his own presence in the person of the Holy Spirit. And He is all you need. Now, if instincts of self-preservation are kicking into high gear right now, then listen again to the Apostle Paul. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, what gives life genuine meaning is when it is expended for God's glory. The Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, if you have been here a while, then you know that every week I invite people that have never come to Christ to make a decision as we close in prayer. And I do that again this morning. But I also want to challenge those of you who have responded to Christ at some point in your life to ask yourself whether Christ is speaking to you when he says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the first love. And if that word pierces your heart, then be obedient to what he also says. Keep on remembering, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did. At the first. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me and pray for a moment this morning.